0: Our sermon this morning is from Luke chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Today, uh, Jesus has an interaction with the Pharisees. And it's, it's flavored a little bit differently than a lot of the other interactions that we see with Jesus and the Pharisees throughout the, the Bible. This one uh, prompts Jesus to speak at length about the city of Jerusalem and who they are and what they do, and what's going to come to them because of what they do. So so as we read it, we're going to consider together what, what it means for us, and how it should inform our lives, and how it should inform our souls, and how it should inform our relationships with, with God. So we're just going to jump right in. Luke 13, 31-35. We'll, uh, we'll read through it, and then we'll work our way through it. It reads, At that very hour some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask you to come and meet us here these next few minutes. We we pray that you would bless the reading of your word. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to you. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to the glory of your gospel. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would change us. We pray that you would make us more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. We'll begin in verse 31. It says, at that very hour. So before we move on, just pause for a second. Here's here's Jesus. Uh, He's just finished. Uh the teaching that we heard last week. He's just uh just taught about the wide door that leads to destruction. Many walk through it. It's the door of self, the door of self reliance and self exaltation. And then there's the narrow door. There's the narrow door of, of self denial and, and repentance and and faith. And very few people walk through this narrow door because because it, it uh it's the exact opposite of what comes so naturally to us. And uh, many religious leaders and and cultural uh you know elites in israel are are in for this rude awakening right They might very well think that they are on their way to salvation and to eternal life, but Jesus communicates that in reality they're not they're they're actually walking uh not through the narrow door to eternal life, rather they're walking through the wide door to destruction and, and judgment. And what's even worse is that they're going to watch as these other people, these, these bad people, these worse people walk right past them and walk into the kingdom of God while they themselves are shut out. So that's what Jesus is talking about in the preceding passage. And right in that space, right in that moment, as he's saying those words to those people, Jesus is approached at that very hour by the Pharisees. Now remember, the Pharisees Pharisees are emblematic of this kind of religious aristocracy uh, that Jesus is speaking out against. They're kind of the poster child of that entire movement, right? The, The Pharisees' whole thing was that they are more righteous than anyone else. They are more faithful to the law than anyone else. But even that wasn't enough, right? It's not just that they were more righteous and more faithful. They had to be seen by everyone as more faithful. They wanted everyone to know how great they were. They wanted everyone to know how holy they were. They wanted everyone to know how righteous they were. They wanted to be celebrated. They wanted everyone to, to fawn all over them. And so these Pharisees would have undoubtedly heard Jesus' words in chapter 13, verses 22 to 30, as a stinging rebuke, Right? implying, if not outright saying, that they were going to hell, that they were going to be on the outside looking in. They were going to be watching sinners and prostitutes be welcomed into the kingdom of God while they themselves are cast out. So chances are, uh, the Pharisees weren't really big fans of Jesus at that moment. Granted, they had never really had a great relationship with Jesus. They were always locking horns with Jesus. But as you can imagine, this was probably a moment of, of particularly tense uh, relations between Jesus and the Pharisees. And that's the moment when they come up to them, when they come up to Jesus and they say, Jesus, get away from here because Herod wants to kill you. Now, it's not entirely clear what we should, should make of this. It might have been genuine right uh you know for all, for all we know uh that they might have actually had genuine noble intentions here we know of at least one pharisee uh named nicodemus who seemed to be loyal to uh, Jesus, right? He he seemed to come to Jesus genuinely to learn from him. He helped uh, after the, the crucifixion uh, with the burial uh, of Jesus. So so if you look at the Pharisees kind of throughout all the gospels, there seem to be these faint glimmers of hope from time to time. And this might be one of them. They might be genuinely concerned for Jesus and they might want to help him uh, stay safe and stay free from, from harm. Or I mean, or it might be that the Pharisees are acting at the behest of Herod himself. Maybe he has kind of deployed them. Herod had just recently uh, killed John the Baptist. And so he might have uh, saw Jesus as being a similar kind of thorn in his side that he wanted to get rid of. But maybe he didn't have the stomach to kill another prophet of God. Maybe he was, you know, already feeling convicted or feeling guilty about what he had done with John the Baptist and didn't want to do something similar with Jesus, but he still wanted Jesus out of the way. So he sends the Pharisees and says, go, uh, you know, go tell Jesus that I'm going to kill him and in so doing, kind of run him out of, out of town. Um, or it might be that the, that the Pharisees either made it up, or just kind of took advantage of a convenient situation. Maybe, maybe the Pharisees themselves wanted Jesus out of that region, and so they make it a point to go to Jesus and and bring these rumors about Herod wanting to to kill him. It's, it's worth, noticing, worth noting that this is not the same Herod that we see in Luke 1, um, who is kind of present in the birth narrative of Jesus. That's Herod the Great, who died shortly thereafter. This is Herod Antipas, who is Herod the Great's son. Um, but So so the Pharisees come to Jesus either with good intentions or with, uh, you know, uh, bad intentions. They come to Jesus and they say, listen, Herod is trying to kill you. Uh, You need to get to get out of here. And here's Jesus's response. He says, go and tell that fox, which just right there worth, worth pausing for a second. uh, Not a term of endearment. Uh, Go and tell Herod, who is a fox. Uh, The word fox could kind of take on a few different um, you know, meanings in first century Jewish uh, vernacular could mean someone who is uh, shady or sly or conniving, someone who is always trying to pull something over uh, on you. They'd call them that; those people a fox. It could mean something uh, destructive or harmful, someone who's always ruining everything. If you look in, uh, in Song of Solomon chapter 2, Uh, the bride is speaking there and she, she says that there are all these little foxes that, that work their way into the vineyard and try to destroy it. And so, so we need to, to keep the foxes out of the vineyard. So the fox is this animal that is, uh, yeah, destroying things and ruining things and taking something that's good and kind of making, making it bad. So, so people would call foxes, people would use the term fox and have that kind of connotation. Um, and a third third use, which, which uh, everyone that I read seemed to think that this was the most common, which is just that a fox was, the word fox would be used to refer to someone who was insignificant, or someone who was worthless, someone who, who didn't matter, someone who wasn't worth my time to think about or worry about, just a, a loser. And so Jesus, Jesus calls Herod a fox. It means one of three things, none of which are particularly flattering. He's either saying that Herod is a con man, or just that Herod is a disaster, uh, or, or that Herod is a loser. Or some combination of those three things. But either way. Jesus says, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons, and I perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Jesus says, Go ahead and tell Herod, I'm not afraid of him. Right? Uh, tell them, I, I've got work to do, I've got things that I'm already planning on doing, and I'm not going to be deterred, and I'm not going to be sidelined, and I'm not going to be moved uh, somewhere because because a Herod sends me a a death threat that may or may not be be credible. There's people I need to heal, there's demons that need to be cast out, there's teaching that I need to communicate to my people, there are big things that, at stake, and so I'm not going to stop. Jesus is is brave, he's he's fearless, he's willing to subject himself to danger, he's willing to undergo personal risk in order to accomplish his mission. And what's even crazier in verse 33 is, is what Jesus' mission is. We read, Nevertheless, I will go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So Jesus says, you know, I'm, I'm not all that worried about Herod. I'm not worried about his intention to kill me. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm, I'm going to keep doing what I am doing. I'm not going to be chased out of town. And besides, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you know this, but the, the mission that I'm on, the place that I'm going is Jerusalem. And what I'm going to do when I get there is I'm, I'm going to die there. I'm going to give my life as a sacrifice there. Herod can't scare me or intimidate me by threatening my life because I've already decided and I've already purposed and I've already begun the process of giving my life away voluntarily. If you want to intimidate me, maybe don't use the same exact thing that I'm already voluntarily going to, to do. Right? It's, it's, it is entirely uh, impressive and, and heroic to risk your life for the sake of a greater purpose, or a greater good, or some sort of good cause, right? Um, you know, people in the armed forces, or police officers, or first responders, these are, are heroes that are risking their life for a good cause, for, for the, the sake of their their neighbor, right? Or even right now, uh, in the midst of a pandemic, right? Grocery store employees, delivery drivers, medical professionals, right? We're, we're incredibly grateful for the people who risk their lives for the sake of serving their neighbor or, or loving their, their neighbor. But, but think about it, even the, even those people that are risking their lives in that way, right? Even though they might die while they're doing what they're doing, right? The the goal or the ideal or the hope, what, what they're hoping to do is that, is that their particular mission goes as planned. And then they, they return home back to their life with their family. Something might go wrong, right their life might be threatened their might their life might be taken from them but the mission itself is not to give their life the mission is to do something that will by definition be risking their their life but Jesus mission is qualitatively different right Jesus mission was not to simply risk his life to do something it was to actually give his life that was his mission right it's the it's like the difference between a soldier being told hey we want you to go on this deployment. There will be enemy combatants. There will be there will be hostile fire. We want you to put your life at risk, but we need you to because the safety and security and freedom of our country depends on it. If you're if you're successful, you'll come back home. We'll celebrate together. That man's a hero. Whether whether he loses his life or whether he comes back safely, that man is a hero. But you know, imagine imagine a scenario. Imagine an astronaut uh, who is. Their ship is broken and they can't make it home. So there's a whole crew of astronauts and their ship is broken and they're all going to die in space unless they fix their ship. And But what's taken to fix their ship, you know, you have to travel out into space and you have to fix some piece of the ship. And, and you only have enough oxygen to make it to the, the place that needs fixing and then to actually fix it. But you don't have enough oxygen to make it back. So, so whoever decides that they're going to be the one to, to kind of go on this mission knows that they are, they're not just risking their life for the sake of their crew; They're actually giving their life up for the sake of their, of their crew. And so Jesus, Jesus says, I'm, you know, I'm not going to let myself be deterred from my mission. Uh, and, and, and I'm not terribly concerned about risking my life because of Herod, because of Herod's, Murderous intentions because the fact of the matter is, I'm already on course to give my life up. I'm already marching toward my own death. I'm already planning on walking to Jerusalem, being arrested, being tried, being condemned, being beaten, being tortured, and being crucified. That's the mission that I'm on. So, a death threat is not going to change anything, a death threat is not going to uh, scare me so Jesus says I'm I'm headed to Jerusalem and then for the rest of this passage he pivots and he starts talking about Jerusalem not doesn't talk about Herod anymore talks about Jerusalem talks about his love for the city of Jerusalem he talks about his love for the people of Jerusalem and he talks about the city of Jerusalem's posture regarding him he says that it cannot be that a parrot that that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem so doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that no prophet had ever died outside of Jerusalem. Some had. Uh, you can read about prophets that died outside of Jerusalem in Second Chronicles or in the book of, of Jeremiah. Jesus wasn't, you know, quoting some widely, you know, held view that Jerusalem is the place where. Um, you know, all or even most of the prophets would would die. He wasn't citing some sort of proverb or some sort of fact of life. He's actually employing irony here when he says that a prophet should uh, that a prophet should not perish outside of Jerusalem, right? Um, Jerusalem had taken on almost a mythic status. Uh, in, in the eyes of the people of, of Israel, right? All of the, the promises of God, they were to be made through Jerusalem. All of God's grace to the world was to be channeled through Jerusalem. God was going to bless uh, the world through the nation of Israel. And Jerusalem was the center of the religious and political life in the nation of, of, of Israel. We talked about this when we studied Lamentations last month. But, uh, but Jerusalem was literally the, the crown jewel of, of all of God's creation, right? God creates the world. He creates humanity and tasks humans with ruling over the world in his stead. They rebel against him and the world is plunged into chaos and disorder. And God promises that one day uh, he'll come back and he'll make it right. Later, God picks Abraham. He says, you're my guy. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. The Messiah is going to come from that nation. God gives his people a nation, Israel. And that nation has a capital, Jerusalem, right? Uh, Jerusalem is ground zero for God's working in the world. So you can imagine that um, if there's ever been a city that is receptive to the to the will of God and to the to the plans of God and to the character of God and to the messengers that God sends to them on their behalf if there's ever been a city that's responsive to all of that that's receptive to all of that it's, it's Jerusalem. If there's a city anywhere on the face of the planet that would receive God's messenger with open arms, it would be Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying, you know that city, the city that the entire world has voted is most likely to embrace God's prophets, the, the holiest city, the godliest city, the most righteous city, the most religious city, Jerusalem. I'm telling you that Jerusalem is actually the city that is most likely to reject prophets from God. To reject the words of God and to and to stone the prophets and to, to kill them. Jerusalem brags about how close they are to God and how much they love the word of God. And I'm telling you that uh, regardless of what they say, they actually despise the word of God. And they want to kill the prophets of, of God, right? Uh, Jerusalem's hatred of the word of God and hatred of the prophets of God is so intense that that no other city, like they, they end up killing. They have them. They cornered the market on killing God's prophets, right? More than Egypt or Babylon or or Nineveh or Galilee or anywhere else, right? Right. And th- these other places uh, clearly don't hate prophets as much as Jerusalem hates prophets because Jerusalem kills all of the prophets before anyone else can even get a chance to, to do anything about it. This is, uh, this is strong language that's meant to incite. It's meant to be uh, offensive. It's meant to be scandalous to the people uh, who hear it because they, they hold Jerusalem in such high regard and presume that Jerusalem is uh, this city that loves God and loves God's prophets. Imagine, imagine going into a, a sports bar in South Boston right and there's all these construction workers and police officers and firefighters and they're all everyone's wearing a jersey right uh Patriots jersey Celtics jersey Red Sox jersey Bruins jersey and so you go in there and you're wearing a Yankees hat right or you're wearing a Lakers jersey right so one of one of their uh, rivals and you take out a megaphone and you say uh, you guys in here, none of you guys are real, true Boston sport. You're all, you're all sellouts. None of you are real, true fans at all. I, I like the Red Sox more than any of you, and I hate the Red Sox. Right? If you went into that bar and said that in that tone to those people, you'd get, you'd get beaten up, right? Because you would have, you would have, you would have called their, their sense of loyalty to a thing that they claim to love you'd have called that into into question. If you if you go up to a married man and say I don't I don't think that you really love your wife. I I can tell by looking at you that you don't care about her, you're not willing to sacrifice for her and you don't love her. In fact, I love your wife more than you do. You'd probably get you probably get punched because that's, that's offensive to say. And that, that's exactly what Jesus was saying to and about the city of Jerusalem. You claim that you love God. You think that you love God and you, you kind of walk with this swagger, presuming that you love God more than anyone else anywhere else loves God. But I'm here to tell you that you don't love God, whether, whether you know it or not. And to be honest, deep down, you probably do know it, but, but whether you know it or not, deep down, you hate God. And you hate God's prophets, and you don't want to listen to them, and you do want to kill them. This is a, a harsh, stinging rebuke that Jesus is giving to the city of Jerusalem. But it's also it's also a deep, emotional lament about the city of Jerusalem. Look at verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. So he starts with, he starts with this double vocative, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's kind of, it's meant to connote uh, love and and affection, but it's also meant to connote uh, disapproval or disappointment or regret, right? Like you, like you say this when someone that you love and someone that you care deeply about does something wrong and you can't just, you can't help but shake your head and, and sigh and just say, oh man, like Ben, Ben, Ben. I'm, I'm, you know, right. Uh, Jesus does this in, in Luke 10 uh, with Mary and Martha. Mary's listening and enjoying Jesus' teaching. She's sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha is stressed out and she's working and she's complaining and she comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, tell Mary to help me. And Jesus' response is, Oh, Martha, Martha, right? Martha, Martha, like I love you and I'm disappointed that you have missed my heart so badly. I'm, I'm, I'm sad for you and I'm sad that you have missed this opportunity to sit with me and to enjoy my presence and to, to be a part of what's happening here as I'm teaching and, uh, in, in interacting with these people. Martha, Martha. It's the same exact tone. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. J- Jerusalem, right? Just like he's just like he's um, you know, mourning the fact that Martha did not want to sit with him and be with him, he's mourning the fact that Jerusalem does not want to be with him. Jerusalem, why do you why do you hate the messengers that God sends to you? Why do you hate the prophets of God? Why do you hate the, the words of God that are being brought to you? Why, why do you insist on doing violence to the prophets of God and, and killing them? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I, I love you and I miss you and I want to be with you. And I'm sad that you are so hostile and so opposed to the thought of being with me. How often, how often I would have gathered your children together As a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing." Jerusalem I, I love you I care about you I want to be with you I want to snuggle up close to you I want to enjoy your presence and I'm hurt that you don't feel the same way about me why do you hate me why do you reject me why won't you come in and receive the free invitation that I am extending to you Jerusalem Jerusalem why are you so stubborn and why are you so quick to reject right right why are you always at arms Length. And what's interesting is so so this deeply emotional lament that Jesus is expressing about the nation, about the city of Israel, and about the people in it, and about their sin and their hard hearts that will not come to Him. This is all kind of uh, against the backdrop of this this frankly terrifying news that Jesus just got about. King Herod right people just come to him and say listen you're about to be killed right and and Herod wants to take your your life and Jesus's primary concern is not for his own life in that moment it's not for his own safety or his own well-being his sadness and his lament is on behalf of a city of people that he loves and that he that he cares about if someone came up to me and told me uh, hey Ben, Uh, watch your back, because someone wants to kill you, they've got a gun, and they're looking for you, and as soon as they see you, they are going to shoot you and kill you. If someone told me that, that is all I would be thinking about. Uh, Until I heard that that guy had changed his mind, or that he was captured and in jail, or whatever, until I knew that the threat had been neutralized, if someone tells me that that I'm going to be killed, that is all that I am, am thinking about. I'd be hiding, I'd be checking the perimeter. I'd, 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 be calling my life insurance company and making sure that everything is, is in place, right? I wouldn't be thinking about anything else except the, the imminent threat on my life. If, if, if I went to the doctor and they said, Ben, you've got cancer and you've got, uh, you know, you've got just a few months to live. I would be devastated and I would be, uh, you know, just terribly sad and distraught and mourning and crying, but my, I'd be mourning and crying about my own fate. About about the fact that I'm, you know, going to die and I'm going to be leaving my family uh, behind, right? Chances are that in either of those scenarios, right, if you're uh, told that someone wants to kill you, or if you're told that you're going to die soon, you're going to be thinking about yourself. You're going to be afraid for yourself. You're going to be sad for yourself. Jesus is not thinking about himself. Jesus is not afraid for himself, and he's not sad for himself. Jesus is thinking about Jerusalem. He's thinking about the people that he loves in Jerusalem. He's not lamenting that his own life is going to be taken from him. He's lamenting that the city he loves and that he cares about insists on throwing themselves into sin and rebellion and, and folly. Jesus is the epitome of godly, others-centeredness and love of neighbor. What do you what what's more likely to weigh heavily on your mind and on your soul? What's more likely to cause you to to grieve or to worry? Is it is it your 401k? Is it your your financial uh health or is it uh your your non-Christian neighbor who who is is headed for an eternity apart from Christ under the wrath of God? What 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 do you spend more time thinking about and and, and worrying about and planning for is it your Uh, your car, or car, you know, your next oil change, or is it the fact that, um, thousands of, tens of thousands of people every day in the world die? Many of whom don't know Christ. Many of whom have never heard the gospel at all. Are you when you go to bed at night? Are you more worried about your your next meal? What what kind of cereal you're going to have in the morning? Are you more worried about uh, our society's unrepentant sin, right? Of greed and and materialism and and pride and love of self and. Uh, sexual sin and, and abortion and and the judgment from God that's going to result from those societal sins. Jesus hears news that is scary and that is personal and that hits really close to home. Jesus hears news that gives him every reason to fear and grieve about his own personal situation. And for the moment, to, he gives him reason to, to ignore anyone and anything else. But he's so invested in the people that he loves that even in that moment of deep personal crisis, the, the first thing on his mind, the, the, the thing that is causing him to lament more than anything else, is the people that he loves, and their spiritual development, and their relationships with God. He's more concerned about his neighbor than he is with his own life. He's more concerned about Jerusalem than he is um, you know, with, with whether or not Herod is going to send an armed guard to come and, and murder him. That's how deep the love of Jesus is for his people. So Jesus stands there. He's, he's, he's thinking about Jerusalem. He's got them in his mind's eye. He stands there. He's, he's looking at them. He's inviting them. He's entreating them. He's, he's begging them. He's, he's pleading with them. Come in. Come to me. Be with me. Enjoy my presence, right? Not unlike, the, uh, not unlike the father in the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15, right? The kid goes off, he spends his inheritance, he spends his father's money, he wastes it all, and then he decides to come home. And here's what, here's what the, uh, Jesus says about that moment when the prodigal son decides to come home. It says, but while he, the prodigal son, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And his father felt compassion. And his father ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. The father... The father didn't wait. He wasn't he wasn't sitting there on the porch waiting, tapping his his foot, waiting for his son to make it all the way back to the house. He wasn't expecting or demanding that his son grovel and beg to be welcomed back in to the family he could have. He had every right. He had he totally he had all the leverage in that moment to treat his son like that, but he was filled with compassion and he ran out to meet his son. And specifically, he ran out while his son was a long way off, which means that that the father was looking and watching and waiting and hoping every day, looking to the horizon. Maybe today will be the day when my son comes back. Maybe today will be the day when I'm united with my son, right? Maybe today I will get to hug my son and have him back in the family again. That's how Jesus felt about the city of Jerusalem. I would have I would have loved Jerusalem. I would have loved to gather you under my wing, just like a, a hen gathered there's her her uh, brood under her wigs but you were not willing jerusalem i love you i want to be with you i'm looking and hoping that i will be with you and you are not willing you reject me over and over again and because of that verse 35 because of that your house is forsaken you're done Jerusalem, you, you've, you've rebelled and resisted and resented uh, just over and over and over. You have become so utterly spiritually desolate, so steeped in pride and so steeped in selfishness and sin that, that judgment is, is an inevitability at this point. You, you cannot uh, escape it. You're going to be destroyed and, and scattered and the judgment of God is going to fall heavy on you which coincidentally happened just a few short decades later in 70 AD when a Roman army came in and captured the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the the temple. So it says, Your city is forsaken, and I tell you, Jerusalem, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you know your New Testament, this is going to sound familiar because this is what everyone said when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, right? In, in Matthew 21 and Mark 11 and Luke 19 and John 12. This is what we celebrate every year on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before, uh, Easter is, is, uh, this is Jesus triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And they all greet him by saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it stands to reason that that's what Jesus has in mind here. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's about to have this triumphal entry into Jerusalem and they're going to greet him with those exact words. So that's probably what he is talking about. Maybe, but it's not, not necessarily that simple. I mean, it makes sense here in Luke that in Luke 13, Jesus says, you will not see me until you greet me by saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then six chapters later in Luke 19, the people see Jesus and they welcome him saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it makes sense here in Luke. But in the Gospel of Matthew, the order is switched. In the Gospel of Matthew, this lament For the city of Jerusalem and the corresponding uh, rebuke that comes with it uh, doesn't occur until after Jesus has already made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Matthew 21, Jesus comes in and they say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, right? Palm Sunday. But then in Matthew 23, after Jesus is already there, after the triumphal entry has already come and gone, Jesus says, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you that you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So even though this text here in Luke might be referring, uh, might be anticipating and in looking forward to, to Palm Sunday in the triumphal entry, certainly there is a parallel passage in Matthew that is not looking forward to Palm Sunday, it's looking forward to something else. So it stands to reason that this passage here in Luke uh, also looks forward not exclusively to Palm Sunday, but to some other future event, at which point God's people will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we can kind of, you know, reverse engineer it a little bit, work our way back to Psalm 118. Uh, where the psalmist uses the exact same language. Psalm 118, verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. And the picture of Psalm 118, start to finish, is is, uh, all of God's people gathered together, worshiping God together. They're all collectively expressing how much they love God. They're expressing how the love of God endures forever. They're rejoicing that God has saved them from their sin and their distress. They're taking refuge in God. And in the reality that God has become their salvation and that he is, is the cornerstone of their life, and their soul, and their eternity. It's like a, it's a massive, collective, all of humanity, all of God's people, worshiping God and lo- loving God. Psalm 118, um, to be honest, looks a lot like what we see of heaven in Revelation. God's people gathered together, worshiping God, and exclaiming how great God is it's got, Psalm 118 has an eschatological bent to it. it 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 has this uh it looks forward to the end times when all of God's people will be together worshiping God at the day of of the Lord and so um so you could look at something like Matthew 23 where Jesus says you will not see me again until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord or you could Look, look at Luke 13, this passage right here, uh, the same way. You will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There might be a near-term sense in which that's anticipating Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that will happen uh, just after he finishes his trip down. But there is a far-term sense in which Jesus is basically saying, You, uh, you will not see me until the second coming of Christ. You will not see me until... Heaven. You, you will not see me until after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after I ascend back to my my throne in heaven and I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. You won't see me until after the entirety of church history. You won't see me until after I come back and I and I defeat Satan once and for all, and I establish my eternal kingdom once and for all. Because when that happens, when I come back and when I establish my kingdom, I'm going to walk into the presence of my people, like you see in Psalm 118. Right, I'm going to walk up, I'm going to take a seat on my throne, and all of my people everywhere are going to say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. According to Psalm 118, in heaven, God's people are going to say, Jesus is the king, Jesus is the greatest, Jesus is the best. We bow our knee to Jesus because he is worthy of it. Blessed is the glorious name of Jesus. So here in Luke 13 and in Matthew 23, Jesus is basically saying, Jerusalem, you have rejected me as your Messiah. You have rejected my kingship, and because of that, you're going to be forsaken. Right, The gospel is now going to be extended to the Gentiles and you're not going to see me anymore. You're not going to hear from me anymore. Right? I presented myself to you as your king. You rejected me and so now you're going to watch for thousands of years as other people that aren't you embrace me as their savior and their king and begin to walk. right. Jerusalem, you're going to watch now as all of Europe embraces the gospel of Jesus. You're going to watch as North America embraces the gospel of Jesus. You're going to watch as South America and and Asia and Africa embrace the gospel of Jesus and you, Jerusalem, you are going to be waiting and you will not see me again until the second coming of Christ. When everyone says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jerusalem, you will you will join in that refrain. You will join in the refrain of saying, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." But it will be for one of two reasons, right? Either, either Jerusalem, either because you trusted in Christ and you were therefore incorporated into God's church, and and you were you're there in heaven and you're welcoming Jesus and you're worshiping Jesus, or you're going to say, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Um, because you persisted in your rebellion and your rejection. You're, you're, you won't be in heaven. You'll be in, in hell and you'll be forced to acknowledge from hell what you refused to acknowledge during your life in this world. That Jesus is, is great and you will spend an entirety, uh, you will spend all of eternity wishing that you had turned from your sin and trusted in Christ when you had the chance, right? The door of salvation was open. But now it's it's closed, right? We, we heard about that last week in chapter 13, verse 25. There will be a point when the master of the house will shut the door. And when he does, everyone that hasn't come in yet is going to get up and knock on the door and say, Lord, open the door to us. And Jesus is going to say, I do not know where you come from. So Jesus is saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I, I love you. I want to be with you. I'm extending an invitation to you. And frankly... If you turn from your sin and if you trust in me, you will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as an act of worship with all of my people in heaven. But if you don't, if you don't trust me, if you refuse to trust in me, then you will still say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it won't be an act of worship, it will be a statement of regret. And it won't be with all of my people in heaven, it will be with all of my enemies in hell. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I long to be be with you, but your city is now forsaken, and therefore you won't see me, you won't hear from me, until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which brings us to our to our conclusion. Just a, a brief consideration of kind of the the overarching application of this text for us as God's people here today. If you've if you've gone to, to church here for any for any length of time, it's not, the, the application here is not going to come as a big surprise to you because, frankly, it's pretty much the same application of the whole entire Bible, and pretty much the same application as every single passage in the Bible, namely what Christ has done for us and how we are called to respond to Christ and to what he has has done for us, right? First, what Christ has done for us. This This passage, the application of this passage, the main theme of this passage is kind of pointing our attention to the person and work of Jesus, right? Like one of those One of those guys on the runway, on the airport, with the flashlights telling the airplanes way to go. Drawing your attention to our great Savior, right? Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Jesus, who willingly stepped down off of his throne and came into our world, right? It's not just that Jesus came into our world to live with us. It's that he came on a very specific mission to die for us, to give his life as a sacrifice for our sin. And all through this life, all through Jesus' life, he knew full well that he was here precisely for that objective. All throughout his life, Jesus had countless opportunities. This is one of them, right? Right? When he, when he could have been distracted, when he could have uh, sidestepped around his mission, when he could have decided to do something else. Jesus could have easily decided not to die on the cross and just to, to, to be distracted with some other goal or some other ambition. But he didn't. Jesus was committed to his mission of dying for his people and saving them from their sin. He had a singular focus on a particular mission To save sinners by dying on the cross for them in their place. He would not allow himself to be deterred. He would not allow himself to be distracted. And he would not allow himself to get get sidetracked. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he would stop at nothing to make sure that he would complete and accomplish that objective. That's what Christ has done for us. And then the second theme and the second application from this passage is how we are to respond in light of what Christ has done for us. And to be honest, we're, We're going to find ourselves making one of two choices, responding in one of two ways, walking down one of two different paths. Because the reality, according to this text, is that Jesus is inviting you. Jesus wants you to be with you. Jesus is pleading with you. Jesus longs to take you under his wing so that you can enjoy his presence. Jesus is is presenting himself to you as your king. Jesus is inviting you to bow your knee to him so that you can live with him under his perfect righteous rule that's the offer that's the invitation that jesus is making to you and the two choices that you have for how to respond or that you can respond like jerusalem or unlike jerusalem right right you can you can respond like jerusalem with with uh, adamant stubborn refusal right jesus wants to be with me but i am not willing i i would rather see my city reduced to rubble than than to pledge allegiance to another king other than myself. I I want nothing to do with God. I want nothing to do with the word of God. I want nothing to do with the messengers who brought God's word to me. I'd sooner kill them than listen to them. I'd sooner go to hell than admit to myself or to anyone else that I need a savior. That's the way of Jerusalem in this text. That's the... That's the wide door of self that leads to destruction. That's option one. Option two is to respond the exact opposite way, to do the opposite of what Jerusalem does here. It's to, it's to hear the invitation of Jesus and then to receive him and, and to trust in him. Jesus, you want to gather me to yourself like a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You are offering me to enjoy your presence and to live under your righteous reign. Jesus, you came here on a mission to give your life as a sacrifice for sin. You are inviting me to have my sin for given if I hide in you Jesus you are coming as my king and inviting me to bow my knee to you and inviting me to take my place in your kingdom all I have to do is is uh, is sign a non-compete clause all, all I have to do is, is give up my right to be my own king and take my place as a citizen in your kingdom right just all I have to do is promise that I'm not going to try to be my own king anymore and then if I do I can live under your benevolent rule and reign forever and ever, right? Jesus, you're offering me that if if I turn from my sin and turn from myself and trust in you as my Savior, then I will experience the fullness of joy in your presence for all of eternity, right? That's the invitation Jesus is offering. And my response is, I hear you. I receive you. I trust in you. I hold fast to you. Jesus, I turn away from my sin. I turn to you as my Savior. I acknowledge that you are my only hope in this life or in the next. This text is all about who Christ is and what Christ has done for you, coming to us on a mission to save us from our sin. And this text is all about how we are to respond to Christ by hearing him and receiving him and turning from our sin and trusting in him as our savior. And my prayer for us as a church is that we would do that together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your Singular, unflappable, immovable dedication to your mission to save us from our sin. We thank you, Lord, that you were not deterred. You were not distracted. We thank you that you gave up everything for us to save us. Lord, we pray that we could respond rightly to who you are and to what you've done for us. We pray that we could hear your word. We pray that we could receive your word. We pray that we could trust in you and that we could hold fast to you. We pray, Lord, that we could walk with you so that you'd be glorified in us and so that we could be satisfied in you. We love you and we trust you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.